0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: We saw the pictures of beaches open over the weekend and the beaches were packed. And I made the point in the last 24 hours that I think how that made you feel probably tells a lot about what you think about this market. For many people, it triggered fears of a second wave. For others, it fueled hopes that we'll reopen quicker and better than expected. To bring someone in who can give us more clarity on what he thinks on that situation, I'm really pleased to say that Julian Emanuel joins us now of BTIG. Julian, let's talk about that. Did the weekend's photographs, the pictures... Of people getting back to normal, did it trigger fears of a second wave, or fuel hopes that we can normalise faster?
2: I think it actually fueled both, John. Uh, You know, first of all, it's very clear that the last several months have made this a more emotional time than usual. But I think when when people saw those pictures, uh, you had both. uh, You know, and again, somewhat dependent on the state you live in whether the cases are rising or falling, and how the progress is. But it really drew out emotions. And then if you look at the weather, it was reasonably nice across the country, which I think has sort of fed into the optimism of share prices the last several days.
0: All right, so let's talk, Julian, about the emotion in stocks right now. What kind of reopening are equity investors pricing in? One that is steady and contained and doesn't include a second wave? Or is it something that comes and fits and starts, but at least is a beginning?
2: So it it feels to us as if it's more a fits and starts type of, of issue, we've called this the potential for, uh, you know, everyone's using letters to describe the recovery. We call it a bathtub-shaped recovery so that, you know, you basically, the U is extended sort of uh, into uh, 2021, as it were. Um, but what really matters, I think, as much as the recovery itself is, is what people are pricing in with regard to the medicine. And where stocks are right now, uh, to us, you know, basically indicates that people are believing that there will be some sort of vaccine, not necessarily available for this fall, implying that there could be a second wave, but certainly uh, for, you know, the fall of 2021.
1: The big challenge for so many people, most investors in this equity market right now, Julian, is finding that right balance, calibrating your exposure to cyclicality to safety. How do you balance those two things right now? We just saw this classic risk-on move yesterday with a huge cyclical tilt. The stay-at-home stocks, the likes of Netflix lower, the reopening names, the likes of Delta, the airlines ripping higher. How do you want to balance between the two going forward from here, Julian?
2: So it's been our view and and we've looked at a lot of data going back the last 30 or 40 years. And what we saw is, is with remarkable consistency the stocks and sectors that were underperformers during the bear market phase, once you transition to a bull market, tended to be the leaders. Now, we're not entirely sold on the fact that you've gone into a new bull market. Um, you know, We actually think that at around this level of 3,000 in SPX, you probably need to do a bit of work time-wise. But in order to sort of account for that risk, and we've seen this the last several weeks, is that people are rotating into small caps, into energy, into financials, and taking some chips off the table uh, from these shelter and play stocks. And we think that's a prudent strategy to keep, to keep doing.
1: Julian, what would give you more confidence that that move was durable, that that rally was sustainable, that it's more than just a squeeze?
2: Uh, if, if a number of companies went into phase three trials, Uh, would be uh, a first thing. A second thing is if Washington would listen to Chairman Powell, who has been adamantly for the last month insisting that more fiscal stimulus is necessary, particularly when you look at at Small Business USA. Uh, The time to put politics aside was a long time ago. And, uh, you know, from our point of view, they need to, you know, consider how that package is going to look before the fall. Um, those would probably be the biggest things for us.
0: I was struck this morning uh, by something that Bank of America Global Research put out. They said, hoping that either fundamentals will improve at record speed or that they simply don't matter is a real risk, given markets' inability to decouple from recessions in the last 90 years. I'm struck by what you said, Julia, and the fact that people are looking at the medicine, perhaps not the underlying fundamentals. How much does the FOMO rally, does this incredible boost to risk ra- assets right now, decrease some of the pressure on policy policymakers to continue with the medicine?
2: Well, uh, no, the, the, the medical aspect of it has is, is got to be sort of full speed ahead. And I think if, if you look at the last couple of days, several other companies announcing that they felt good about, you know, moving into phase no, one No, excuse me, Julian. Has been, when I
0: say medicine, I'm talking about the fiscal medicine, the idea of policy oh, coming medicine. out of Washington uh, getting no. together. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, so, you know, this is an election year, Lisa, and you, you certainly have a lull right now, given the fact that the equity markets have moved where they have. But uh, another aspect of it is that certainly what we've seen in the last several weeks is a ratcheting up of pressure with regard to China. And that is something that sort of, you know, is one of the caps in, in the marketplace as well. We actually think that as the data continues to – It's not going to improve dramatically. You know, certainly Jamie Dimon coming out and saying that uh, uh, a rebound, a stronger rebound, is looking more likely is is encouraging. But the fact is, is that the employment situation and small business America is still very much, uh, you know, at risk. And the closer you get to the fall and the closer you get to the election, the more imperative it's going to be for given that those are the constituents who are going to be casting ballots. Um, you know, to to really do a, a bit more to get us through to where we're at the point next year where you actually do get a more durable recovery.
0: You mentioned China, and this is a key ingredient to markets right now. So far, I can find little evidence of worry that this escalation in tensions between the U.S. and China is leading to any dampening in the risk on trade. Do you think that right now, investors are overly complacent that we're not going to see a ramping up of tensions that will have a drag on global growth, especially heading into the election?
2: Well, I think it's, it's, it's probably more bluster heading into the election. Um, But if you actually look at the options market, which as you know, we do, uh, what you've seen again is that the the hedging for the term just past the election has become cautionary again. Downside puts have become very expensive relative to upside calls, which tells you that the risk, particularly with regard to geopolitics, is more an issue for 2021. And we think that's applicable, you know, regardless of who wins the election in November.
1: Hey, Julian, always great to catch up with you, sir. Send our best to the family, won't you? Brilliant to hear from you. Julian Emanuel there of BTIG. (music) To talk about the bond market, let's bring in a good friend of this program, Cathy Jones of Charles Schwab. Cathy, fantastic to have you with us. I've been thinking about what I know you've been thinking about. What would create the most amount of pain in this market for the most amount of people? Inflation. How underpriced is inflation coming out of this as we reopen, Cathy?
3: Oh, it's really underpriced. And, you know, let me be clear, we're not looking for a lot of inflation. We have to get through the deflation before we get to worrying about the inflation. But when you look at um, the way the market's priced right now, uh, there's really no there's no expectation built into the bond market of inflation. And so it, it's a huge concern that keeps coming up with our clients, even though we think it's a couple of years down the road if it's out there at all.
1: Just seems to be some confidence, much more so about the front end of any yield curve at the moment, Cathy, and for good reason as well. It's really anchored. Central banks are just going to sit there for a long, long time. Seems to be a lot more uncertainty about the longer end, how the 10-year and out responds to any pickup in inflation. Cathy, what are your thoughts on that at the moment, particularly specifically here in the Treasury market?
3: Yeah, um, I think that there is the expectation that a worst case scenario, the Fed goes to yield curve control, and that keeps the short to intermediate term at least anchored, and that they would take whatever moves they would need to to take in order to anchor the long end of the curve as well, as much as they did in that post-World War II era. Um, but I do think that, you know, for people who are worried about inflation or at this, this point, uh, the cheapest way to hedge it is probably tips. Um, there's almost no yield. In some cases, they have negative yields. But um, in terms of hedging tail risk, tips are a very efficient way to do that. And uh, we do see people kind of barbelling their portfolio. So they're buying kind of short-term credit and long-term tips as a way to play both ends of the spectrum.
0: I'm struggling to understand, though, where the inflation would come from. People talking about how money printing in the past hasn't led to inflation. Certainly, we didn't see it after 2008. I do wonder, though, whether the trade issues and the deglobalization that we were talking about early in the program will lead to inflation. The idea that overseas production was cheaper, you bring it back on shore, it gets more expensive. How much is that driving the sort of barbell idea that you have?
3: There's quite a bit of thought about that. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical that companies are really going to reshore that much because it's still going to be a big leap in terms of their costs and can they really pass those costs on to consumers and, and not just hurt their margins. So I could see... That you'll see some movement of concentration out of China, as we've already seen, but a lot of it is still going to places that the labor costs are cheaper and you still have sort of this access to global supply chains, say like Latin America, obviously the rest of Southeast Asia. So, you know, if it's going to happen, if deglobalization is going to happen, I think it's a long term process, just as globalization was. So um, we're just not seeing the kind of inputs to inflation that I think will produce it in the next year or two or maybe probably even three. But at some point down the road, you know, there's always a possibility it could materialize. And I frankly think central banks would welcome it, right? They'd be very tolerant of an overshoot on inflation at this stage of the game.
1: Well, that's the point, isn't it, Kathy? They'd be tolerant of it. Let's talk about their reaction mm-hmm. function how they would respond to any of this? Do you think they'd respond at all?
3: Not initially. Um, You know, if you think that, say, for the Fed, they've undershot their inflation target for, I don't know, how many years now. Um, we've heard from Powell that you know that the emphasis on this is a symmetric target at two percent on the core PCE or really whatever measure um, you want to use, and so I think they would be quite tolerant if um, th- because I think the central banks believe that uh, inflation is a problem they can solve. They've done this in the past; they know what it takes, um, and so this is not their big concern. that deflation is the bigger concern, so I think they would let it run. For a bit as long as it was a mild acceleration and not a runaway acceleration.
0: Let's talk about another problem that the Federal Reserve and other central banks can't solve or perhaps have been unwilling to solve, and that's bankruptcy. And John and I were talking about this earlier, this idea that Is there any discomfort emerging from FOMC uh, members, given the fact that we're seeing a rally in the riskiest debt this month, which is actually outperforming safer notes as investors get more complacent that they'll be backstopped by the Fed and fiscal stimulus? I'm wondering how much that disconnect has led to elevated prices. In other words, how much pain are people going to feel who are buying triple C bonds right now?
3: Yeah, I, it's been quite remarkable to me how people have sort of piled in um, because of the perception that the Fed is going to buy the whole high yield bond market. I mean, if you if you listen to what they said and look at the term sheet, they're not buying the entire market. Uh, I can see that spreads were so elevated that they needed to come down. That I, I think that that makes sense. Just the provision of liquidity helped that, but you know they've been very specific about buying some fallen angels. Um, a small amount, a limited amount of ETFs. But, you know, people are trained now. I think they're just conditioned now. If the Fed is buying it, they're buying it. And the perception is that the Fed is supporting the high-yield market, broadly speaking. And a lot of people have run in. If you look at the assets under management and some of the bigger ETFs, they've jumped 20, 30 uh, percent in the last couple of weeks. So clearly a lot of people are chasing the trade.
0: Yeah, it's been shocking to me. I've been watching HYG, the BlackRock High Yield Bond ETF, that's seen nearly $2 billion of inflows over the past week, more than $5 billion so far year to date. I'm just wondering, are you selling this? Are you basically saying, we're out, we're done, we think you guys are overpricing the Fed put, and right now we just want to hide out investment grade in treasuries?
3: Well, we definitely prefer investment grade um, and at the shorter end, you know, one to five years, which is what the Fed is buying. On the on the high yield, we're neutral, but we're being really cautious because a lot of these companies won't qualify for the Fed's program. Um, we do look for defaults to pick up maybe in the, as high as 10 percent uh, in the speculative defaults, and we think recovery rates are going to be low. So um, particularly with, you know, the triple Cs and the very low rated bonds, um, we would definitely be out of that.
1: Well, Lisa, this is the pain trade, isn't it? And we saw it play out in Europe over the last 10 years. Once the central bank gets involved in an asset class, it's totally divorced from fundamentals. You can get spreads grinding tighter even as the economy hardly picks up. We saw that over the last 10 years. And I do wonder, Lisa, whether that is the playbook this time around or whether things are somewhat different.
0: You can't have Fed money preventing bankruptcies. There's only so long that asset prices can remain elevated at a time when these companies are getting no revenues. That's what I'm struggling with. And the idea that some of these companies are putting up islands and uh, cruise ships in order to raise more money and stay alive. At a certain point, the time runs out, which I guess, Kathy, that's my question. What's sort of the tipping point at which these companies become insolvent and no amount of Fed backstop can help them?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's coming. You know, I think it will, will probably materialize later this year. Um, we're not seeing the revenue pick up that a lot of these companies need. A lot have been living on rolling over short term debt in the bank loan market and that that market is uh has deteriorated pretty quickly. So I think it's coming later this year for the really low rated credits. This has been the initial kind of euphoric move of recovery off of, you know, spreads at eleven hundred uh... over treasuries and now they've come down to something that's you know closer to realistic i guess uh... given the backdrop but even um, even if yeah. if the whole country opens up and even if you know we start to see recovery i think some of those companies just can't make it their debts are too high they're not going to recover um, to profitability anytime soon and i think their leverage ratios just got too out of control So i, I think it's coming probably late this year
1: Kathy Jones will continue the conversation no doubt Kathy from Charles Schwab Lisa just a lot of optimism over the last couple of days relative to where we were several weeks ago about how quickly we can reopen but not only that how quickly we can get back to normal
0: Yeah, if you look at the pictures over the weekend, the pandemic's over, John. That's apparent from the Lake of Ozarks, apparently, as everybody gathers in and uh, crowds pools. My question is, are we going to see a second wave of infection in two weeks that will reverse what we've seen? Or is this going to give fuel to people who think that perhaps some of the shutdowns have been overdone, giving more of a lift to equity markets? A big question mark. And ultimately, uh, it will be one of the determining factors of what's to come this summer.
1: Let's have that conversation on reopening, the conversation of the morning on that very topic. I'm pleased to say that the 54th mayor of Boston joins us now, Mayor Marty Walsh. Mr. Mayor, fantastic to have you with us on the program. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. There is so much discussion at the federal level, how quickly we should open up. At the state level, can you talk to us about the city level, why Boston needs to go at its own pace?
4: I mean, first of all, thank you for having me this morning. Uh, Secondly, I think that uh, Boston's a very densely populated city. Uh, we're about 700,000 people in about 47 square miles. Uh, every day when we're in normal circumstances, our, our city doubles in size with people coming in to go to work here in Boston. And during college season, we add another 150 to 200,000 college students in our city, graduate students uh, that are learning here in the city of Boston. So what I wanna make sure is as we reopen, we get it right, uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned about a second surge. And I don't think that our economy necessarily can handle a second surge and a complete shutdown. So I think it's very important that as we, as we reopen, whether it's office buildings or manufacturing or whatever it might be, that we do it in, in a in this very thoughtful, um, methodical approach uh, so that we, can, so we don't have to, in the event of a second surge, shut down again.
1: Mayor Walsh, just in terms of the education system, and you've touched on that, let's expand on it. What's the city prepared for, just in terms of how quickly we can get the schools reopened?
4: Well, the colleges and universities are making having conversations now. Uh, some of them have already made statements that they'll be back in, in August, and I hope they are. Uh, they're talking about doing massive testing and, and tracing and, and also potential self-isolation if, if somebody tests positive. Uh, you know, it's a big part of our economy here in the city of Boston. It's a large employer, uh, and these college students that come in, spend a lot of money in our city. They eat in our restaurants. They they shop in our stores. So, uh, it would be great to see schools open, but the way that's really important for for me, anyway, as mayor, is to make sure that they're healthy as well. I mean, this this isn't health uh, healthcare versus the economy. This all has to be together. Uh, public health is vitally important right now as we move forward. Uh, you know, nearly over three hundred thousand people have lost their life. Uh, excuse me, three hundred thousand people lost their life in the in the world. A hundred hundred thousand in, in the United States of America, and quite honestly. If we didn't take all the precautions that we did over the last three months, that number would be far greater. Uh, in Massachusetts, we're the fourth highest uh, state for the number of cases and the third highest state for deaths. And uh, that's not where you want to be. And it's important that we take, continue to take this serious. Uh, and and now is not the time to let our guy down.
0: Mr. Mayor, I'm wondering whether reopening plans can be determined locally, city by city, or whether in order to be effective, they really have to be federally coordinated.
4: Uh, I don't think they need to be federally coordinated. I think they have to be uh, state coordinated, and I think they have to be almost uh, – in, in in Massachusetts, we usually go by cities and towns, but if you can do it by county. Uh, in, in Massachusetts, the two of the highest counties uh, that have the highest number of cases the Middlesex County and Suffolk County. We're in Suffolk County, and Middlesex is next door. Uh, if there's an opportunity for us to look at kind of the approach that New York was looking at, letting some counties open up, uh, ease and restrictions, you have rural and, and – and, and, uh, and, and suburban areas, uh, um, you know, uh, so it so really is uh, important to think about, be thoughtful when you think about reopening. You can't just blanketly reopen across the country. You know, Massachusetts, Michigan, New York, New Jersey, the highest states, uh, what we're dealing with, are different, the challenges in our states are a lot different than, than Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, and, 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 and you know, maybe uh, Louisville, so Kentucky, I should say. Uh, so I, I don't think it can be a state by state. It has to be um it can't it can't be by the country i should say it has to be state by state we're also sharing best practices so what i watch is going on in seattle i watch what's going on in la in new york in in houston and austin places like that in chicago and i make decisions sometimes my decisions are based on what they're doing or where they are in the surge if we're ahead of them they follow us and we follow them it's about sharing best practices
0: Mr. Mayor, based on your experience with the virology here, I'm wondering whether you think that the data backs up the reopening enthusiasm that we saw across the country over the weekend.
4: I think that the data backs up the reopening if we follow it. Uh, I think it's not being followed consistently across the country. I think that, you know, the data shows that uh, we don't have 14 day declines and, we're, and we, people feeling the pressure to reopen. Uh, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm elected official. I've been mayor of Boston for seven years. Uh, and, and, and I can feel the pressure sometimes, but it's not about the pressure. It's about doing the right thing. Uh, there's no difference between reopening and shutting down. When you make a decision to shut down a city, uh, which not many people have had to do uh, in the last 100 years, quite honestly, uh, they're difficult decisions. As we think about reopening, all of the work that was done over the last three months, whether it's in Boston or, or, or in the Ozarks, how, how do you, you can't just let that go by just reopening because people want to be out in the sun. It's not, it's not the safe way to do it. Uh, Because the data will show us again if there's a second surge, if that surge could be worse than the first one. And that's where the problems will come into play.
1: Mayor Walsh, just in the 45 seconds we have left with you, I think it's important to touch on austerity. The good news is that the budget was in good shape in Boston coming into this particular crisis. Coming out of it, there's a real fear about state and city level austerity. Could you set expectations for us appropriately appropriately?
4: I mean, I think we've had seven years of incredible growth in the city of Boston and this coming year, what we're going to do is preserve the important pieces of the budget, we're going to be making investments in education, investments in housing, uh, but we still have to have a balanced responsible budget. Uh, So there will be cuts across the board in the city of Boston, our final budget will be voted on sometime in the next three weeks here. Uh, and we're working right now with our Boston City Council to come up with the final product. So it won't be as it won't be as rosy a budget as 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 last year was. But hopefully, uh, we get out of this safely, and next year we'll, we're going back to prosperity again.
1: Marty, I hope this is a conversation we can continue. I look forward to doing that with you over the next several months on this particular topic because I think it's a really important conversation. Boston's mayor, there, Marty Walsh, on reopening in Boston.
0: Uh, as we shift gears to China, very much also in the focus right now. And I'm so pleased to say Leland Miller of the China Beige Book CEO joins us now. So hard to parse the noise from the reality when it comes to some of the saber rattling between the U.S. and China. Leland, what measures being currently proposed by U.S. Congress should traders, should analysts be taking more seriously?
5: Well, there are a couple of different things happening right now, and I think that's one of the reasons why people are a little bit complacent about what's what's really an enormous downside risk to markets over over the coming weeks and months. Uh, POTUS has come out and said, uh, "We're going to make a big, you know, I'm going to make a big announcement on Friday." The presumption is he's going to come out with some sanctions and some other some other threatening moves. Uh, Congress has come out with a bill that is actually quite aggressive, and that it sanctions individuals, but it also sanctions Chinese banks to assist those individuals in cracking down on the Hong Kong protests. And and so you've got these sanctions uh, looming over, over markets, but the bigger deal is actually the question of special status for Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has a special relationship with the United States in that uh, we don't treat it like mainland China, that it's sufficiently autonomous from China to treat it differently. And the State Department has to make an annual certification that that remains the case. This has always been sort of pro forma for years and years and years. Now it's a big question. And if this passes, if these Article 23 uh, sedition laws are jammed through Hong Kong from Beijing, there's a very good chance that uh, well, we will see discertification from the State Department and that the certification uh, will likely lead at some point in the near future to special status removal, although the president will have the ability to, to make that bigger or, or, or lesser uh, depending on how he wants to, to run this. So, a lot of uh, things and a lot of risk uh, coming from, from these actions.
0: Leland, who would that hurt more, revoking the special trading status, the U.S. or China?
5: Well, you know, it's not really going to hurt China directly. It's going to hurt Hong Kong. And that's the main problem with this, is that most people in Hong Kong are very, very opposed to the fact that Beijing is is stamping out their liberty and... and, and doing away with one country two systems that's why this isn't an automatic move uh... in, in, in regards to, uh, to article twenty three uh... but the i think the united states will have to move forward is particularly if you start seeing aggressive actions uh, when the npc when the national people's congress language is announced you'll have a question of whether it's going to be uh... you know uh, softly introduced or whether you immediately see the security services pulling people out of their houses uh, in preparation for you know Tiananmen Square anniversary is next week. It's a huge uh, political anniversary. So depending on how the Chinese handle this, you could see a very fierce reaction in a matter of days, or you could see this as a slow boil through the next couple of months.
0: Leland, why is Beijing doing this now?
5: Well, I, I think that it's tempting to look at this through the prism of U.S.-China relations, and and, and certainly there's an element to this. But the reality is that. In September, Hong Kong has Legislative Council elections. And just like the lower elections that were held uh, a number of months ago, pro-Beijing forces look like they're going to do very, very poorly. So if you're ever going to sort of tighten the screws and put in uh, some some stronger laws that give Beijing control and make sure that Beijing's not embarrassed in September, you really have to act now, this summer, in order to change the landscape so that Beijing is not embarrassed in September. So a combination of what's happening externally and what's happening in Hong Kong domestically has created this window where Beijing has to act and probably act aggressively if it wants to change what's going to happen in the fall. And and it looks like that's what it's doing right now.
0: John and I were talking throughout the morning about how markets are pretty much shrugging off a repeat of what we saw in recent years with respect to the rising tensions between the U.S. and China over trade. A lot of people saying phase one trade agreement still on. Both countries need it. You're saying it's basically dead in the water. Why do you say that?
5: Well, look. When people hear sanctions, they're they're right to sort of you know roll their eyes a little bit. Say, are, how meaningful are these sanctions going to be? Is it Congress or is President Trump really going to sanction some some very high level bureau members uh, with you know for, freeze their assets, do some 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 big time moves on the sanction side? Probably not, at least right now. So they're right to not take sanctions too seriously quite yet. But the special status is a really big deal, and if the United States uh, pulls that back, then it changes the U.S. Uh, China relationship uh, quite significantly. And, look, the, this, it reflects the overall deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship going into the fall. I mean, it's getting very, very toxic. And, you know, my, my belief is it's going to be very hard for the president to stand by the Phase 1 deal when he's not seeing the deal filled. He's going into a very rough election season. China's the topic of the day. Who's meanest to China? You know, is the, is the guy who's going to win this? And uh, he's going to have to stand by the deal until he can't. So I think phase one is in real trouble. I think it's likely we, we don't see it uh, survive the election. And uh, this is just a reflection of the overall toxicity of the relationship right now.
0: Leland Miller, CEO of China Beige Book, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.